This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Intelligent Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. In an age where the line between cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation seems ever more blurred, it's worth asking if anyone can actually own a culture. In this episode of the podcast, acclaimed author and public intellectual Martin Puckner shows us that the history of mankind has always been a story of borrowing from one another, and that this is something to be celebrated and not lamented. Our host for this conversation is Edward Wilson Lee, fellow and lecturer at Sydney Sussex College, University of Cambridge. Here's Edward with more. Martin is the Byron and Anita Wien uh, Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Harvard University and the author of a large number of books on literature, cultural history and philosophy, amongst which uh, I will just mention a few such as 2017's The Written World, The Power of Stories to Shape People, History and Civilizations, and 2020's uh, The Language of Thieves, about a secret code language targeted by the Nazis for elimination. But we're here tonight to discuss his most recent volume, which is Culture, A New World History, which is now out from uh, Norton in the US and from Ithaca here in the UK. Uh, Martin, uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us. And I'm going to start by just getting a sense of how you embarked on this absolutely immense undertaking. And it is a a book of enormous scope, uh, chronologically, geographically, and thematically. So it moves uh, from ancient Egypt in the beginning to K-pop in the end, from Mughal, India, uh, to medieval Germany, taking in poetry and, and sculpture and anthropology and prayer and ritual and all sorts of things uh, along the way. So um, what prompted you uh, to undertake this and, and how did you go about starting to think about such uh, an utterly vast topic? It started a couple of years ago in a context where people, especially who are in the humanities in in academia, spend a lot of time, we spend a lot of time wringing our hands about declining enrollments and think people generally in arts and culture, people don't care about arts anymore, what's wrong, what's going on. And I spent a good deal of time bemoaning all of these things as well. But then at some point, I kind of paused and realized that I had actually never really asked myself some of these fundamental questions about culture, such as why do we engage in this sort of non-utilitarian activity? How does culture actually work? How did it proceed? What are the big arcs? What are the big themes of this human endeavor? And so then the pandemic hit and I you know, was stuck at home and I thought, well, I have nothing better to do. 
why don't I do it now? So I sort of dug in and tried to go as broad and wide, Edward, as you said, I ended up doing in order to, to sort of distill some of these important moments, turning points, sort of moments that sort of illustrate to me how culture really works. And, and I wanted to do that, you know, not in a big survey, but to sort of select these compelling case studies, about 15, and then tell them in a kind of narrative and, and sort of interesting, immersive way, uh, hoping that out of, you know, the sequence of them, out of these different case studies, that, that bigger picture that I wanted to sketch would somehow emerge. As you say, it's, you know, part of, you know, that one of the solutions or one of the potential solutions to declining admissions or enrollment uh, is, is bringing the joy back. And I think this is one of the things that the book does very well is just is bring the, bring the joy back. And also in an age of, of hyper-specialization where, the, you know, the, the tendency is to focus on, on quite small things, to think about these really big questions about what is culture and why should we, we preserve it. You said um, something in there which I want to come back to and, and press you a little further on. So one of the ways in which the book's is structured is by focusing on on moments of of transmission and you know what I think you call special places places and institutions of, of meaning making so places where culture is stored and, and reproduced and, and and so on and so forth can can you tell us a little bit about why we might choose to look at culture in that way as opposed to looking you know at moments of creation or, or, or something like that at first I didn't quite know what to emphasize and so I I really looked all over the place trying to think about different case studies, what emerged as, as a sort of through line and transmission, as you say, was one. And in a way, going back to the basics, the, the very perhaps banal fact that culture is not transmitted automatically, you know, unlike our genes that transmit our human genome to the next generation, when, when it comes to culture, cultural knowledge, we have to devise external storage media and ways of making sure that cultural knowledge gets transmitted to the next generation. And because otherwise it's lost and it so much is lost all the time. So for me, storage and transmission became crucial. And so, you know, one place where I started is with cave art and the Chauvet cave in particular. And in part because these cave paintings are so amazing and, you know, 30, 40,000 years old, uh, produced over a long period of time. But above all, I started to think of these caves as sort of one of the first storage places where culture and cultural knowledge was stored and transmitted to the next generation. And then, of course, there are others, libraries and universities and, and the Internet and, and other technologies that fulfill that function. But caves and temples and theaters and, and other such institutions and places and storage technologies uh, became central. And I think, you know, part of the experience of a lot of beauty and, and artistic beauty is no different than any other is a sense of ephemerality, the sense that this extraordinary thing that you're holding on to might simply simply disappear. I, I wonder whether also looking at moments of transmission does something to solve part of the part of the problem of what we do with with historical works of art, right? Um, in that 
you and I both as as literature professors, you know, know that we are, are often caught in an enigma between trying to discern authorial purpose. What did the creator of this work mean, which is often something that you can never quite get to and never be quite certain about on the one hand. Uh, and on the other hand, throwing it widely, wildly open to kind of reader reception. What did people take this to mean? Uh, which, you know, to a certain extent, almost suggests that the, that the work has no, that there's no responsibility to the work of art. So I wonder whether, you know, choosing moments of transition was a kind of halfway house in some way. Yeah, you know, Edward, it's a very interesting way of putting it. I think you're right. You know, I do have some moments of creation, you know, for example, the Egyptian sculptor Tutmose, who creates this extraordinary sculpture of, of Queen Nefertiti. And so I, I, you know, I dwell on that. And that is sort of one of the early chapters. But then even more fascinating to me is the fact that that whole episode in, in Egyptian uh, history, which was so radical because Queen Nefertiti invented a new god, you know, left Thebes, started a new city, start, you know, invented a new aesthetics of representation, how that episode was deliberately erased from history by subsequent dynasties, perhaps because it was too startling and too revolutionary, and how it was then rediscovered and reinterpreted. And, and so these moments of broken transmission, where something is lost, where something uh, gets interrupted and then is rediscovered after a break that those became to to my mind not exceptions but really the rule and it's very rare to find a genuinely continuous cultural tradition there are always these interruptions and break and so that became a, a special dynamic that that really stood out for me and so i think i tried to find as many episodes that look at that dynamic from different perspectives. Another one is a pillar by the Indian king Ashoka, a pillar he had inscribed in order to present a kind of Buddhist idea of Buddhist kingship that was very important to him, had become very important to him. And he erected these massive stone pillars in order to propagate this new belief and also to speak both to the future and he hoped to export Buddhism abroad. After a while, the pillar became illegible, but then that didn't stop people from going to it, interpreting it, trying to understand why is this massive pillar there. Subsequent rulers find it, transport it to Delhi, then finally it's rediscovered and reinterpreted. Those are stories that I, I emphasized, I think in, precisely because of what you mentioned, Edward, namely that it's of course fascinating to think about these moments of creation. But the, the reason why we humans create cultural products which are not there for, for our survival is because of this kind of collective intergenerational process of meaning making. That's never complete. That's never at an end. That's, that's ongoing, but apparently really crucial to us because we do it wherever we live. And so it seemed to me it was to get at that dynamic, these uh, stories of transmission and rediscovery were, were more important or at least as important as just celebrating the originality of artists. Yeah, wonderful. Um, and, and one of the things that I found um, you know, most fascinating in the book is, is the part that you talk about, the part that you see error and misunderstanding playing um, in, in the transmission of culture. So whether or not there are breaks in transmission, you know, um, even if you're successful in keeping something in a kind of locked box, 
the context in which it was originally understood um, disappear or they degrade and, and suddenly it doesn't mean the same to the person who, who opens the box. So that old kind of new critical fantasy of um, the well-wrought urn in which you can put poetry and you seal it up and it comes out fresh as a daisy 400 years later is, of course, a fantasy because it doesn't doesn't mean the same to, to everyone. Um, so... Just to, to quote from the book, um, you write that errors are the way in which a, a culture experiments, allowing new generations to project their own concerns onto the past and to inject urgency into its continuation. I, I wonder if you could start by giving us a few examples of this kind of creative misinterpretation that you're thinking of. You've already given us one uh, with, with Ashoka and, um, and his pillow, but if you can say a little bit more about that and then you know, we can talk perhaps a little about you know, what, what we can do with that idea. Yeah. Yeah. So as you say, errors became crucial. And it's odd because, you know, as a teacher and researcher, I try to get things right. And in the book, I try to put things in their original context to help myself and readers understand where these things come from. But at the same time, the steam of error really stood out. And, and it seems to me in the end, efforts to minimize errors and misunderstandings are probably misguided because they are just, they can be so generative and have been. So I just mentioned Ashoka where people, once the inscription became illegible, nevertheless continued oral stories about who might have erected this pillar and what, what, what it might mean. And travelers come and encounter it and, and there are legends, oral legends of various kinds. And, uh, it, you know, the, we now know that they are not technically true, but they are. These pillars are almost like magnets that that attract cultural production, so to speak, stories, interpretations, uh, and that perhaps is more important than than getting it right. Another example is this: you mentioned locked boxes. I actually became obsessed with sort of time capsules because the Chauvet cave with which I start gets sealed up and then doesn't get open for about 30,000 years. And it is sort of like a time capsule. Another time capsule is Pompeii. Often these, get, these are moments of destruction that paradoxically also preserve a moment of culture. Uh, and that was true with the eruption of the volcano in, in Pompeii in, in AD 79. One of the things that, was, that we know because of thanks to the volcano is that there was this, statue, this Indian statue, or South Asian statue that was found in Pompeii and it, you know you can can retrace the story of how how it probably got there, and it has a lot to say about trade between the Roman Empire and and, and Asia. But it's also clear that 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 small statue of of a female goddess probably was part of a history of misunderstanding. It's very likely that the Roman owner of that statue probably thought she was a version of, of Venus or the Greek Aphrodite, uh, which is not technically true, but that's just part of that history of interpretation and making something that's foreign or from the past your own, understanding it with your own cultural horizon. And that's most likely what, what happened to the statue uh, as well. And you know there are many other examples of that. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. 
and you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. You're absolutely right. There's, there's so many examples, fantastic examples of this in the book, in the ways in which, for instance, the um, the bust of Nefertiti that you, you begin with becomes this provocative thing for uh, for Freud and Thomas Mann and, and, and so on and so forth, despite the fact that in many ways their historical understanding of these objects uh, would now probably not be understandings that would be particularly respected by modern archaeologists and ancient historians, you know, the revision, and yet uh, how productive it was for them to, to think through and with these objects w- was important. Uh, I mean, I wonder, again, how how you approach this as, as a teacher, in a sense that, as, as you said at the beginning, you know, we are, to a certain extent, in our role, trying to, if not set limits upon interpretation, interpretation, um, I, I suppose, ensure that the interpretation is not simply kind of imposed upon the work, that it that it's sensitive to the historical conditions within which it was created. And yet, recognising the kind of generativity of error, I mean, how do we find a balance between understanding, you know, what the object was originally made for and allowing ourselves the freedom to, to reinterpret it? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's an interesting dilemma. The way I would uh, approach it is to say that I want to, you know, when I teach, but you know, also when I write, I want to put students and readers in a position where they learn things, where, where they have cultural knowledge about this moment or, or about a work that seems relevant and important to know. That seems more important than sort of imposing an interpretation. Uh, so because teaching students and readers cultural facts, forces, putting things in context, I think puts them in a position where they can come up with an interpretation that is grounded in knowledge rather than something random. And I would say in the defense of Freud and Thomas Mann, who then after the statue gets rediscovered, find themselves super intrigued that there, there is this moment in Egyptian history that apparently we witness because of that discovery sort of the birth of monotheism or sort of a protoform of monotheism and while you're absolutely right edward that you know some of the spin that freud puts puts on this you know where he thinks that moses was an egyptian and perhaps thomas mann you know is speculative but i would actually say that that these artists in thinking about this cultural moment and writing either a kind of treatise in in the case of Freud or a a very long novel in the case of Thomas Mann contributed to thinking about this episode in in history. And I think there are actually current scholars of Egyptology who are quite cognizant of that 
reception history and who use it and who interpret it in, in sort of similar ways, actually. So yes, these were you know, not scholars, but their response to this fascinating moment in history, uh, I think was a serious one and it's still taken seriously. So I think in the end, it's not, I'm not trying to hit readers over the head with interpretations, nor do I do that with students. But I think putting people in a position where they can form their own judgment based on some knowledge, I think that's sort of the goal. And I think it's, you know, it's interesting how often in the history of culture that what have um seemed perhaps at first to be errors of interpretation have later been seen to be kind of intuitions of a deeper structure. I mean, I think the number of times when presumably people were crying cultural barbarianism, saying, you know, this is, you know, this is the wrong way to see this. And when actually, you know, it turned out later that, you know, there's a, there's a wider agreement with that. So I'm going to going to move the conversation on uh, now a little bit to address the the question that I, I suppose is, is you being used to structure uh, this conversation, this event. And which, uh, to a certain extent, looms over the book and looms over the question of, of cultural cultural artifacts more generally nowadays. This question of who owns culture. So there in the background, um, I mean, I think you know, there's one way to read this book, which is just as a, as a sort of vast soaring flight over the history of culture. But another way to to read it is is thinking about these questions of cultural appropriation and cancel culture and, and so on and so forth that have been such a live part of uh, cultural conversations you know, recently. So I, I wonder if you could say a little bit about the the threat to the ways in which culture functions, has historically functioned, that, that are posed by, or the danger that's posed by, some of these, these current conversations that we're having. Yeah, yeah you're, you're absolutely right. The questions of cultural appropriation and cancer culture and so on and so forth were on my mind as I was writing this book, because this is, you know, if you Google culture these days, most likely some of these terms will, will, will pop up. And so I think it shows, among other things, that we are at a moment where we fight a lot about culture. And it's true that sometimes I feel like, oh, I wish we were fighting less. But on, on the other hand, uh, I think it, there's something good about it in that people care. They care about culture. This is why we fight about something we care. So here, too, I think it's in a way I didn't try, just want to come down on some position in these contemporary debates, but to take a step back and to sort of gain an understanding of how culture works. How is it transmitted? How do moments of creativity emerge? What happens at these moments of cultural borrowing in order to, again, inform a little bit the debate, perhaps in similar terms from what we just talked about, putting readers in a position where they now have a lot of sort of perhaps interestingly selected historical episodes that they can use in order to think themselves about you know what are the limits of cultural appropriation who owns what 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 is legitimate what is not legitimate so in, you know in the book i i didn't want to say okay this is good this is bad this is okay but i wanted to provide a lot of materials material with which to think about these issues. And so, but, you know, since you want to push me to take some positions, and that's fair enough. Uh, and because I do think that there are some implications, perhaps, and 
maybe to select one, I think also cultural appropriation is used in so many different contexts. And so I don't really use it in the book because of it, but let's just select one context. And that's the, you know, the whole debate about restitution of objects from museums, from the Elgin marbles to statues from Benin and so on and so forth. And I, I recognize there in, the, in this particular context that, for example, arguments of cultural ownership can be quite powerful to say, yes, Lord Elgin had some kind of contract with, that allowed him to take some, something back to, uh, to England, but it was a little bit murky. And in any case, this was a, a treaty between two empires, the British Empire, the Ottoman Empire. But there, there are questions that can be asked. The same about the Nefertiti statue that we talked about earlier, excavated by a Prussian expedition. They were allowed to take certain objects home, how they ended up with the statue of Nefertiti, there are some questions about that. And then there are more crasser examples, like in the case of Benin, where objects were taken just under so clearly exploitative conditions of extreme violence and disrespect and ended up in museums in, you know, in London and Berlin and New York and other places. So I am, of course, I mean, I don't approve of such theft, uh, especially these extreme cases. I also understand that to say, you know, this, this comes from our culture, you took it under dubious circumstances, please return it, can be a powerful argument. But perhaps one way of articulating one place in which I ended up in this whole question of ownership is to say the goal of the restitution debate shouldn't be that everything just goes back from where it came, because I think that would leave everyone culturally impoverished because I do believe in that sort of one takeaway point from this whole history is that cultural borrowing is just the single most important driver of cultural development. So to apply, if I were to apply this to the restitution debate, I think I would say something, it may not be very practical, but to say the goal is not just to return everything, but to say, you know, let's return Benin statues as museums have begun to do, but let's send something else with them and let's come to an agreement about how we can maybe borrow some of these statues back and how they can continue to circulate in a better form to the one that under, you know, the conditions under which they were taken. Because I do believe that the goal should be more circulation, though perhaps better circulation than less circulation. And I do sometimes worry that getting too stuck on the language of ownership erects barriers that in the end are not helpful to anyone. Yeah, and I, I agree with you that part of the problem here might be um, the tendency to fall back on, on metaphors of ownership, which is a, you know, a very um, vague concept, which can range you know, across all sorts of different things. I, I entirely also agree with you on the, the need to, um, to retain circulation. And in fact, um, I, I have also had a pet theory that instead of you know, sending back uh, Elgin marbles and Benin bronzes, that the government should be forced to give them an equivalent number of turners and first folios. You know, um, and so if there's anyone on, on here listening who has the power to make that happen, um, you know, consider that. <laughs> <laughs> consider that as an option although it's entirely possible that the Greeks don't want a bunch of turners uh, but anyway yeah so I think um, I think you're right that there is part of the problem here is about the the tendency to reach reflexively towards a notion of ownership uh, which can apply to some things and um, it, you know doesn't apply very well to others so again you know part of the cultural appropriation debate is perhaps complicated by distinction between objects and ideas so you know 
thinking as a, as a kind of limit experiment. On the one hand, presumably, you know, you're not um, telling people to go into the National Gallery and take a Rembrandt off the wall uh, or, or to, to go into bookstores and steal your book. So, you know, there is a, a way of owning, you know, owning a kind of a cultural object. But on the other hand, uh, there's clearly, uh, you know, a reductio ad absurdum on the, the other side, which, um, you know, saying because the, you know, Arabs invented love poetry, which transmitted through the troubadours that no one should be allowed to, you know, they should have a kind of uh, domaine d'origine contrôlé on, on, on love poetry and no one should be able to write it except them. So there's clearly, to a certain extent, absurdities on both both ends. So my question is to you about where do we draw the line? Where, where do we cease to be able to own a cultural object and start to be able to own and start to have something that really can't be laid claim to by any particular group? Yeah, you know, I think you're so right. Once you move beyond objects, I think it becomes very hard to use the language and ill-advised to use the language of ownership, I feel. And so I, I think actually the more I think about it, the more I really think that it is impossible to draw the line. Who should draw the line? Who should be allowed? You know, sometimes when it comes to immaterial cultural forms and ideas, the language of cultural appropriation is used, I think, to avoid shallow, uh, you know, or just sort of super superficial uses of objects from another culture or from the past. And yes, I'm, that's not great. I'm not for that. But I find myself harder and harder to press to say, you know, this is this is good informed use and this this isn't. I do think it's important to generate a culture in which people want to learn more about something, even if they, you know, find it on YouTube or, or somewhere where uh, I think it's okay to say, okay, I don't know very much about this, but it intrigues me. So let's try to find out more about it. And so I'm all for instilling that. But I don't want to be the professor who, you know, who says, no, 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 you, you don't know enough about this or you haven't earned the right to, to write love poetry in this particular style. I just find it impossible to do. And, you know, and since you mentioned copyright in my own book, I'd say, that, you know, the royalties we authors get are so minuscule that people are actually, you know, I don't want to encourage theft, but no one should feel guilty with respect to me if they steal a copy of my book or find it on the Internet in, in some form. And the, the thing about copyright, you know, it's, uh, and there, it's not a book about copyright, in part because copyright, serious copyright protections have only been around for like 130, 140 years. But the key idea about intellectual copyright is that it has expired and it should be very short so that there are some incentives for, you know, creative artists and, 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 and so on and so forth to make a living. And that's, of course, important, but that it expires because the idea behind it is that you cannot individually control this, you know, for generations because culture in the end, we all own culture together. Because it is part of that, you know, I started to think of it almost like a species history of, of humans because we keep doing this thing, namely to producing cultural objects. And so I'm, I'm quite critical of, you know, especially in the U.S., uh, copyright protections keep getting increased and increased and increased because of the Disney corporations and the other big corporations. And that's, I think, another way of you know, coming back to what you said earlier, namely that our cultural moment in this moment of capitalism, we revert too quickly to 
to ownership. And if you look at the history of copyright protections in the, in the last 50 years, it's all been driven by big Disney corporations. And that alone, I think, should give us pause when we use ownership as, as a kind of crucial way of thinking about culture. You know, one of the difficulties here, um, as you say, with, in a copyright case, it's important to allow the producer of the, you know, the art object uh, the ability to, to earn a living off that. But beyond that, it's quite difficult to say who can lay claim, legitimate claim, um, to, to, to ownership of, of this object. And, and similarly, when, when talking about legitimate interpretations, illegitimate interpretations, who can decide on these legitimate, you know, or what constitutes legitimate or an illegitimate interpretation? And to a certain extent, one, you know, one ends up falling back on, on kind of assertions of, of authority over an object. And it's not quite clear, you know, on what those things are, are grounded. But I wonder if, you know, you had any... You know, if, if there were feelings of, of exception, uh, you know, even if ownership ownership of culture is not a, a useful way to think about this, whether this concept of cultural appropriation, you know, we we can maybe talk about some of the more uh, you know famous uh, stories of this that have come up in, in in the media. Whether there are instances of this um, that you are you know you're tempted to consider as as exceptions to to your general way of thinking or you know con confirmatory cases yeah so I, I think it's an interesting question so in the end I mean there are lots of moments of cultural contact or of someone using something that I think are bad or rife with violence and exploitation. So there's no question about it. I, I can come up with five million. And there are many stories like that in the book, you know, when the Spanish conquistadors come to encounter the Aztecs and burn down their cities and destroy their books so that very few survive. I mean, there, there, there are a lot of moments of cultural violence that's inflicted here that, that obviously are terrible. But when it comes especially to the sort of more famous cases that go through media here and that get labeled a cultural appropriation, I think my instinct is to say, let's actually look at how what people who use the language of cultural appropriation are trying to accomplish by using this phrase. And I think in most cases, I find that there are actually better alternatives. I mean, one famous case about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago that went through the media a lot in the US, especially the right-wing media, were these students at Oberlin College, a very liberal arts college, that complained that the cafeteria had sort of started an international corner and was offering sushi and banh mi sandwiches. And then Japanese and Vietnamese students complained that the cafeteria was practicing cultural appropriation. And so, you know, it's, it's very easy to make fun of this. And a lot of people did. Uh, and I actually don't want to make fun of it because if you actually look at the student newspapers, you know, where, they, where, the, where the students were recorded as saying these things and writing these op-eds, what they actually were trying to say is that this was really terrible sushi. And the banh mi sandwiches, they used the wrong bread, they used ciabatta bread, and it was just really bad food that somehow got put in that international corner of the cafeteria. And so, you know, again, I, I, I'm not for bad sushi or these terrible fake banh mi sandwiches that were served. But this is a case where I think the argument to make is not, 
you know, cultural appropriation because then you are in a situation where you say, you know, should only Japanese students eat sushi or only Japanese sushi chefs create sushis? But it's sort of an argument about quality and how serious is this engagement with this cultural practice. And where, again, where you want to create a culture of uh, of engagement and of, of knowledge uh, rather than shallow and superficial one, but where in my case at least I feel like the much more effective way has to do with quality and, and to look at you know what went wrong here rather than to use this language of default to this language of ownership that I feel like is, is actually not very effective to to explain what went wrong here. And so I think that's so this is sort of would be my strategy, not to say people who cry cultural appropriation are, are wrong, but that there may be a better way of thinking about these cases. I don't know whether you have some examples that come to your mind. I mean, no, I mean, I think you put it well, but, you know, and I think, again, I'm, I'm slightly conscious of lapsing back on an economic metaphor here. But, um, you know, perhaps one, you know, one way to, to think of it is of uh, the tendency of, uh, you know, with, within capitalist systems of monopolies to grow unless you have mechanisms to in, ensure against that and to, to kind of ensure the recirculation of energy. And if, you know, if, if what one is uh, or the recirculation of capital in that sense. And if what one is looking for is that the recirculation, you know, the circulation of culture, the sharing of culture, um, that, that to a certain extent, you know, what one perhaps does have to guard against is a situation in which one, a powerful actor with access to, um, you know, means of distribution far in excess of, of you know, everyone else's, becomes the person who is telling everyone else what you know what what their culture is so again you know one example that i suppose i i used to think of about this is uh, i think there was a furore a few years ago about um beyonce and i apologize in advance if there are any you know queen bay fans out there um but uh, beyonce using henna in a music video uh, or something like this and on the one hand it, you know this seems a little silly you know, you would uh, would try and prevent someone from celebrating. Whereas she was, you know, she was not trying to to mock or undermine the the, the idea of the use of, of henna hand decoration. You know, and and uh, she was obviously celebrating its its uh, its cultural power and its beauty. On the other hand, you know, part of my mind goes to the cultural use of henna in in, in say India, where it's this. It's a ritual which binds together the community because it's something that you know mothers and mothers do with their daughters and grandmothers do with their grandchildren. And you know the prospect of that child, you know, some child who spends more time with their iPhone than they do with their grandparent, um, learning about and coming to associate henna decorations with Beyonce rather than with their grandmother, whilst certainly not something that I'd want to, or I don't think that the, you know, kind of legislative and capitalist language of cultural appropriation necessarily fits. It does nevertheless conjure a sadness in me um, that that would be, you know, that would be how they, how they would know about it. So I suppose a question is, especially in this modern global hyper-connected environment, how we prevent the world from being kind of flooded with cheap ersatz versions of you know being flooded with bad ban me and bad <laughs> bad sushi uh, rather than having access to good ban me and, and you know good sushi and, and making sure that the the traditions which lie at the heart of of making that 
you know, of producing that with with kind of love and knowledge aren't stamped out by things that simply have a a greater kind of uh, a greater ability to produce quickly and cheaply and and, and circulate more more widely. No, no, I I, I hear that. I don't think we'll be able to stop the, you know, circulation of lot. I mean, we live in an age of circulation. And I think my instinct always is to say, you know, we, we can't prevent that anyway. But how can we use it? And who knows what the effects of people learning from, Be- from Beyoncé about this particular cultural practice ultimately are. You know, you, I, since we're now talking about the, you know, the, the very end of the book, in a sense, uh, and these cases, Internet, uh, this is why I end with uh, K-pop, because K-pop sort of came of age, of course, with the Internet. And I, I mentioned this anecdote where, you know, I'm too old to have grown up with uh, K-pop. Uh, uh, I think you are too. And so, I, you know, I don't have kids, but lots of, you know, friends do. And my nephew was and kids of friends. And so I mentioned this anecdote. I was actually staying with a friend in Norway and his, his kid was, I think, 11 at the time. You know, I, I show up for breakfast and the, and the kid is already up and has set his alarm and, you know, 11, 12 year olds don't want to get up early for school. And he's been up and studying Korean uh, with a textbook by himself because he wants, he's been fascinated by Korea because of his K-pop idols. And so, yes, you can, you know, you can say, ah, you know, what just watching K-pop videos, what's worth that? But you never know what an encounter, a first encounter in a, you know, let's shallow or mass media kind of way, what it leads to. And again, this is, makes me think that we, I mean, we can't adjudicate it that way. What we can do is try to foster, as you put it so, so nicely, a, a, a culture of, of engagement, of wanting to learn really what, where does this come from, rather than being content with, you know, just sharing a video. And so I think the strategy here is, is again, it's not one of cultural ownership, but of cultural engagement, valuing that, instilling that in people. I think that's the way to go. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, we're, you know, I'm, I'm talking about some, some limit cases. And in fact, you know, I think, um, you know, K-pop and BTS, with which my kids are, uh, you know, my youngest son is obsessed, is a, is a very good example of both, you know, to a certain extent, BTS is built on imitations or, you know, um, reformulations of the young Michael Jackson itself. Um, it sounds very much like that. And, and on the other hand, you know, the fact that BTS is globally dominant suggests that good cultural productions can win out even over, you know, a capitalist, you know, capital asymmetries or, or power asymmetries or, or whatever. So um, there's so many more things that we could talk about, but we're, we're out of time. So um, uh, I think uh, I'll draw it to a close there just by thanking uh, you. So, so my thanks to Martin Puckner uh, and to our audience and to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should talk about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com.